Hello and welcome to the third episode of Standing Before the Mass podcast. I'm your host, Chris Heaton. We are sponsored by Newport Nautical Supply, and today my guest is Dave McLaughlin. Dave is the Executive Director of Clean Ocean Access. Clean Ocean Access is a nonprofit environmental group that works to promote a healthy ocean that is free of marine debris with water that is safe for all, as well as ocean activities and a shoreline that is accessible to the public. Their mission is to take action so future generations can enjoy ocean activities. They focus on three goals, to eliminate marine debris, to improve coastal water quality, and to protect and preserve shoreline access. Dave is here to tell us a bit about how they got started, what efforts the group is currently engaged, and where they're headed. So kick back, have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here with Dave McLaughlin from Clean Ocean Access, and Dave is going to tell us about Clean Ocean Access and his role. Fantastic. Uh, So again, Clean Ocean Access was formed in 2006. Uh, We had some issues uh, accessing the the cliff walk and surfing off of Ruggles, and then that summer we were just really aware of uh, poor water quality at the beaches. So a group of guys, predominantly just guys in middle age who surf, got together and decided we wanted to do something about it, and uh, that's kind of where Clean Ocean Access started. Uh, things like marine debris and things like that were kind of an afterthought. We just did a beach cleanup to meet new people. Uh, and since that time, the group's grown. Uh, you know, it's really now a community-based organization expanding across Aquinnick Island, but I think that uh, our impact and our message is heard loud and clear uh, far beyond the uh, coastlines of this island. And, uh, you know, as the role I'm in right now is I've kind of played a leadership role uh, from 2006 to 14 as it was kind of a volunteer grassroots organization. And I think that we've still kept the grassroots feel, but we're now a nonprofit and I'm the executive director. Uh, you know, we, uh, we got an office in 2016. We hired a first and second employee in the spring of 2016. And now we have uh, four part-time employees, including myself as a, the only full-time employee. And I noticed that you're very data-driven, having participated in one of your cleanups. You don't just go and grab a bag and collect things. You, we have a checklist. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. The uh, the you know the saying goes that passion doesn't influence policy, but data does. Mm. Uh, I was up at the state house years ago, and uh, uh, one of the general assembly members, you know, said, "I really you know respect your opinion, but what I really want to know about is the data." Mm. And he had a really good point. Uh, and you know, as some is that what started the well, the well, kind of, sorta. I mean, we've always known that we needed data, and we always always realized that if we wanted to move something forward, as we were, we need to be able to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, very numbers driven kind of person, uh, studied mathematics in college, so I, I, I like the analytical side of all of this. Uh, and you know, the first thing that really happened was in 2014. We out of the 46,000 items that awesome volunteers found on the shoreline, 13,000 were cigarette butts. And really, that advocacy from a community-based, data-driven point of view is really what started the, the movement of why collecting reliable, consistent data is so paramount to the organization. That shocked me. I, one of the cleanups I participated in, we were along Wellington Ave by Kings Park, and I came back with a 
bag that didn't weigh very much, but I think I counted 113, 14 cigarette butts, and it was, it was yeah. shocking. We're pleased to see that the numbers have gone down at the parks and beaches and recreation areas because of the ordinance to eliminate smoking. But I think as most people can report, there's still a lot of work to be done. Mm. Uh, I mean, first of all, smoking isn't really good for you. Mm. I respect the fact that some people do it, but there has to be more responsible behavior and we need better signage and we need, we need enforcement. And that's a big problem. Uh, you know, environmental rules and regulations are great, but if you don't have the means to enforce them, mm. it really begs the question as to how do you really get it done? And on another policy issue, you successfully led a ban on plastic bags here on Aquidneck Island. Uh, are all three communities now bag-free? They are. Uh, Portsmouth was the last community passed the ordinance. Mm -hmm. Their ordinance will actually go live on September 1st of this year, so that right now they're in a voluntary compliance. Uh, and as during the 22-month process of getting that in place, uh, Jamestown actually came on board as well. All right. They'll be going live with the ordinance on Earth Day, so uh, three weeks from yesterday. Yeah, it always used to bother me. You'd always see them caught in a tree yeah. or, or something, and I actually caught one of my leash ones on a surfboard. Yeah. And that wasn't fun. Um, and it seemed the, the only resistance I ever saw in the press always seemed to be the same argument, which was, you know, hey, not me. I recycle these bags. I use them for other trash. But... It was only one argument I ever heard. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, responsible behavior on behalf of the individual was a, was, was a valid argument. I also think that, uh, you know, humans adapt and they're so resilient in some ways is that we found so many ways to reuse these bags. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality is reusing a bag once or twice, if it ends up in the landfill, it's that's actually really, really bad. So, uh, you know, I respected all the... Uh, alternative points of view, and I certainly think that taking away someone's choice is a very sensitive topic that we have to be mindful of all the time. Uh, but, you know, ocean health is a time-sensitive issue. Right. And I think if our founding fathers who crossed the ocean hundreds of years ago thought about our constitutional rights, they probably would have put something in there that talked about protecting the ocean mm. somewhere along with, like, freedom of choice. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> Now, up in Providence, I've just read and I got an email saying that the mayor vetoed their bag ban, bag ban, excuse me, and the reasoning was they felt it skipped some steps and maybe people weren't included. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so really two things could you bring up about skipping the steps and, you know, as someone who's, who's sat on the side of seeing these things move forward, one of the most, uh, you know, one of the things that tested my patience was when does the ordinance actually go live? And I was rem reminded by, you know, people that I look for advice is, you know, if the ordinance goes live in a year, 10 years from now, it will be live for nine years. So, like, don't get too worked up about the timeline. So be patient with it, right? Uh, you know, every time we approached Portsmouth with cigarettes or bags, they provided some legitimate resistance at Forbes. And, and I'm in support of it. And we were like, we're here for the long haul. So... Uh, you know, taking your time on these things. I mean, I think that's the thing about democracy is that it takes a long time to get good laws passed, but it comes to, it's to make sure that bad laws don't get through too quickly. Uh, but as far as Providence goes, I think one of the main differences between the ordinance that was proposed there and what we've done on Aquinnick Island was the uh, introduction of a fee. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if you just think about the fee itself without looking at the bigger topic of environmental justice, 
Uh, over the years, it has been shown that when you've added in a fee, it has helped reduce the amount of paper bags that are used as well, which mm -hmm. I think is one of the main drivers is to really move people towards reusable bags. Uh, the approach that we took on Aquidneck Island was not to introduce a fee because we didn't want to introduce the risk that the councils would support a fee on all bags but on any bag. So in other words, right. not eliminating the plastic and just saying any bag that's used comes with a fee. We didn't feel that that wasn't a risk that we were the going to take. Oh. Uh, so I think that is a difference of the approach. Uh, I think there also is a bigger topic of, of uh, you know, the environmental justice and the impact on you know, the most vulnerable in the community. Uh, and I think that that is a, an argument and, a, and something that needs to be considered at all times. Uh, you know, environment, the health of the environment, it, it inevitably falls on the most vulnerable and the next generation, and we don't feel that that debt should be given to anyone. That's something that we should own and be responsible for. Uh, so whether it's, you know, finding a, a bag sharing program to make sure that everyone has a bag or provide enough time, I also think that there's enough environmental movement and mainstream knowledge about plastic pollution and ocean litter mm -hmm. that I don't necessarily think that you need a fee on the bags. I mean, we're not, you know, advocating that we use more paper bags, but, you know, the reality is if you did use more paper, you could grow more trees. And if we use more plastic, we're just going to be killing the ocean. Right. So uh, I think there's a lot of hope in Providence and for the state of Rhode Island. Uh, I don't necessarily know if we need a fee, but I think that all of this discussion, it's, it's just like a newspaper article that's got a couple of wrong facts. It's actually a good thing because mm. it gets people talking about the topic. Sure. So if more people are aware that, hey, you should bring a reusable bag and it happened because of this fee versus no fee, mm. great. Take one for the team. Right. And let's move keep on. going, you yeah. know? Another thing that you, or Clean Ocean Access has been behind that I guess has been very successful, it even surprised the harbor master, is the trash skimmers. Right. Um, and I had spent some time on the harbor, and I remember one corner in particular at Parati Park, uh, where Carl Bolander's barge used to be, um, the, the um, Hurricane Gloria. In that corner, it just used to, trash used to accumulate, the southwest breeze, all kinds of things would blow in there. And um, I guess what you're pulling out of those skimmers has, has been pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, the skimmers are great, and, uh, you know, Tim Mills, the harbor master, is a great partner to work with, uh, as well as with the crew at Sail Newport at Fort Adams, as well as New England Boat Works up in Portsmouth, that we have a skimmer up there. Uh, but yeah, the skimmers are, you know, they're highly effective at removing floating surface debris. And one of the things that we try to do on the education programs that we do with kids and adults down there is to explain that the units actually aerate the water that it's discharging from the skimmer, and that aeration adds dissolved oxygen, which actually helps to break down hydrocarbons and emulsify oil sheen. So it's actually right. helping the environment by improving water quality. Uh, one of the things that we found, which is part of a bigger topic, is the commingled nature of plastics, waste, as well, and organic material like seaweed. Mm -hmm. But what we found is when we remove, say, 20 pounds of stuff from the skimmer, and it's laced with plastic, but you see a lot of this organic material. But when you remove it all, it's just coated in oil and oil sheen. Oh. So the small amount of organic material is actually providing a huge benefit because it's it's essentially acting like a pad to for the oil to attach to. It doesn't actually get absorbed, but it attaches to it. Uh, so yeah, the uh, the skimmers are great because it really brings together technology, innovation. 
uh, a removal technique, and it really gets people thinking about how can we fix this problem in the first place. And the reality is marine debris is a solvable problem, and it, it starts with behavior change on land. Were these something that you designed, or where do they come from? Yeah, that's a great question. Somebody build them? Uh, so this gentleman, Louis Basov, was in uh, San Diego 18 years ago having lunch with his wife, and uh, he saw some trash floating by, and, you know, an avid surfer from San Clemente. Uh, and he's like, i got to do something about this. So he started prototyping in his garage a unit that would essentially collect this stuff. He actually works at a wastewater treatment plant. Uh, and so he created the trash camera. And uh, the first one went into implementation at uh, Humphreys Half Moon Bay on Shelter Island in San Diego. And uh, ironically, we were just out there three weeks ago at the 6th International Marine Debris Conference. I want to talk about that. Yeah, too. and we were able to bring people down to check out the trash camera, the first one that went in. So, uh, you know, but, you know, big shout out to 11th Hour Racing for believing in the importance of ocean health because they helped really to provide the funding mechanism mm -hmm. for us to get the first trash skimmers installed. And now we're really trying to reach out and work with other uh, entities like, you know, the University of Connecticut in Connecticut, uh, New Bedford, uh, perhaps in the Providence Water Fire area. So we're trying to really take the skimmers as an effective tool not only to address removal, but also for education, awareness, and inspiring behavior change. I've seen your volunteers behind the Newport Yacht Club going through what, what the skimmer collects. And I, I've also seen Bill Casey drop him in the water with his crane for you. What, you don't have to use the crane every time to, to clean them out, do you? Right, right. So Bill Casey and Exa, I think his cousin with the tree service, Steve Casey, helped out to put the units in, uh, and that was fantastic. Now the way that it works is uh, Timmy Mills will drag them across the Newport Yacht Club and use their hoist to bring them out and use a dolly. So you do need to remove the whole unit. Yeah, every every two to three months, on average, you need to take them out, at least up in this latitude, and pressure wash the units. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do a little bit more proactive, preventive type cleaning while it's in the unit, you won't have as much uh, organic growth. But it's essentially like a boat hull, and it's just sitting there. Right. Uh, so yeah, you got to take them out a few months and uh, pressure wash them, and obviously seasonal storage as well. Uh, yeah, hats off to our amazing team of interns that help out with uh, assessing the debris. But without doing that, you'd never really get the story of, to what we found. And, you know, I think one of the most interesting things that we found was, well, two, one is that microplastics and tiny plastic particles are very prevalent in our waters here, which you really wouldn't find on a beach cleanup because that would be like picking up grains of sand. Right. And the other thing is the amount of small monofilament fishing line which we believe is coming from when people are undoing uh, hooks from old fishing lines. So it's really an opportunity to reach out to a larger part of the community to try to just bring an awareness to the topic, to try to put in some type of prevent, preventive behavior. Uh, so mm -hmm. the skimmers are fun. Yeah, when I, I kayak out to my boat, it's a means of transportation, and every trip in both directions, I come in with a couple of plastic water bottles, a soda can, a beer can, a knit bottle, or, or a plastic straw. Is there some way someone like myself who's not in an active cleanup situation can report that stuff if I was so inclined? In other words, I, I just take it and it either winds up in my recycling bin right. in the Newport chain or it goes into my trash. So yeah, absolutely. You can, uh, We could provide you with a data sheet that you can fill out afterwards and send it to us, but you could also uh, download the Marine Debris Tracker app on mm -hmm. your mobile phone, and you'd be able to basically click through it and select the item that you found and record it and enter it in. Right. And it's geotagged, so it knows where the item came from. 
Uh, and one of the things that we're doing there in terms of the data collection, and I'm glad you described the water bottle and the straw, is in 2018, this summer, and moving into 2019, we're going to be shifting the data collection so we focus more on brands and less on the items. So it'd be like, ah. what kind of water bottle? What kind of straw? Because right. when you think about your behavior, it's like, all right, 100 water bottles, that's a problem. But if I told you they were Nestle or Dasani, it might actually influence you purchasing those bottles. Right. Nothing against those companies, but if we want to influence behavior change, there needs to be more of a connection right. to what type of materials they are. I mean, I love a Milky Way, but if you find <laughs> a Milky Way wrapper, it's like, yeah. what's up with that? Like, why, yeah. do, you, why do you need this? commingled plastic film that doesn't go away. And what is it saying about other fellow Milky Way enthusiasts? Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's actually, this is a good segue. There's a great video on YouTube um, with Jackson Brown, the singer-songwriter. And it's sort of a backstage thing that someone like yourself caught him and, and interviewed him. And he's quite passionate about it. And it's water bottles. And he... I guess it's a rule when he's on tour, he does not have water bottles. You know, he, he carries a recyclable, like a clean canteen. He fills it up at, at the fountain or the bubbler here in yeah. Rhode Island. And when he goes to the airport, he can empty it. He can refill it on the other side. But one of the, uh, he's so passionate about this. One of the ideas he came up with is he's going to make up a little tag. Because if he's in a hotel room or a conference room, nobody knows that he, he actively refused to drink that water. And he talks about the inconveniences, that they're just taking tap water, bottling it, and then selling it to you at 3 or $4 a bottle. So he's, he had this idea to come up with this tag to hang on it that says, I refuse this yeah. on, on some, you know, on a principle. And it, it, it's quite a good video. It's, uh, if you just type in Jackson Brown and water bottle, it, right, it'll come right. up. I forget the organization, but it's a, it's a woman who catches him and interviews it. And... That also made me think about the plastic straws because there's another video, um, I think it's Sailors for the Sea. Okay. And they filmed it, I believe, at the IAYC. Yep, yep. Um, and it's about skipping the straw. Sure, sure. And, and that's, there was just something about that in Boston as well. Boston is moving away from the straw. Yeah, there's a huge effort right now to, you know, have the last straw everywhere. <laughs> right. We've all seen the first straw, but now we move, move to the last. The last. Uh, what do you think? Um, alternatives are, is it just skip the straw completely or or are there viable alternatives like I've heard wood and uh, the ones in Boston they were promoting were like silverware almost it was, yeah it was stainless steel I think well I think you know for, for someone who doesn't have any special needs I think that if you truly need a straw you know having responsible behavior and carrying your own straw is a viable way to do it right if, if you are someone who uh, who just uses a straw out of simple convenience, you need to change your ways. Uh, but I also think that, you know, for people who have any type of a disability, as well as people who are in the hospital, mm -hmm. I think we need to provide this level of convenience because it's not really convenience, it's a necessity. Right. Uh, so I think, you know, we have to be realistic about all these topics, but for the most part, for most people, I think skipping the straw is a path that you have to take. Uh, and, you know... You know, changing your ways and giving up some convenience, you've, you've got to believe that it matters and you've got to make it fun. Right. You get into new conversations with people when you, when you go to your drive-thru to get 
food, but you ask for your drip beverage in a refill, in a refill. It's like you get a human experience there, a human exchange of information and emotion that you wouldn't get if they just handed you another bo- another cup with the lid with the straw. Right. It's kind of so. It's uh, yeah. You got to seek out those opportunities. You can make it fun. And I, I like to support local businesses, and one that you've partnered with um, is Empire Tea and Coffee, and a reusable coffee mug. And they seem to be, a, or at least maybe with your influence, a bit ahead of the curve, whereas some of the larger chains now are just saying, oh, well, we'll, we'll get rid of the styrofoam cup after how many years? Yeah. So that might actually go back to what you were saying about associating the brand with the trash. Sure, sure. Um, uh, yeah, I think what the group at Down Empire is doing is is, is is fantastic. I think with multiple stores on the Quidnick Island, perhaps one one off the island, they're in a position that they have enough control of their supply chain and their value chain that they can actually influence the choices that they're making, and their customers can be aware of it, appreciate it, and in return, you know, shop there uh, more often. So whether it's their whole reusable mug program Mm -hmm. or when you're in the store, if you actually get a a porcelain mug, uh, plates, washables, getting rid of straws, getting rid of plastic stirs. And I think at the end of the day, I mean, although these things come with a cost, you know, the customer is demanding this. Mm -hmm. And I think that for people who don't appreciate it as much, I don't think they even realize that there's a change. And for other people that it means the world to them, it's like, I think it figures out where they want to go and have their next cup of coffee. I actually went out and purchased, my wife and I purchased clean canteen, insulated aluminum water bottles as a result of being at the Folk Festival. Right. Because there they had this, instead of just a hose pipe coming out of a wall that people were filling up their water bottles with, they had a whole station and it was very efficient and it was a wall of a bank of fillable Right. spouts that you could top up your water and it, it, I don't think it was the same at the jazz festival but it was it was quite impressive well there's an event coming in, up in May which I, I I try to refer to as called the bring your own reusable water bottle to the Volvo Ocean Race because right. we're going to have 21 filler stations there and it's the same idea uh, yeah and people you know they mentioned the clean canteen everyone loves their clean canteen people take pride right. in their reusable products that's great yeah. you should Dent it up a little bit. Enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you brought up the Volvo. Um, You're going to have a big presence there, aren't you? We are. We're going to have an awesome uh, art exhibit in the One Ocean Exploration Zone. So we've been working with high school students on the Quidnick Island to uh, share with them what environmental stewardship means and what they want this island to look like in the future. And they're going to be using art with the power of intention to describe how we can become better stewards of a critic island. Uh, so that's what we're doing in the One Ocean Exploration Zone. Mm. Uh, and we're also helping in a big way to lead the sustainability efforts, uh, which, by the way, it's, this is all a team effort of hundreds, if not thousands of people. And it goes back to, you know, the Volvo Ocean Race of 2015, as well as the America's Cup in 2012. So Sail Newport and the community have really been leading the way. And where the sustainability effort is right now for the Volvo Ocean Race is such that what happened in Newport in 2015 is really the baseline requirement for all the stopovers. Mm-hmm. So when Volvo 
basically told South Newport and the community that you need to follow this protocol. We basically said yes with open arms because it was essentially what we had done in the what past. What you wanted, right. So now we're trying to raise the bar. And, you know, last year we diverted almost 60% of the material from the landfill, which was good, much better than even, you know, residential rates. But we want to try to get that number closer to, say, 90%. I, I wasn't paying that much attention to the last Volvo, uh, as I do at, say, the Folk Festival, but is it as an active recycling and trash program that the Folk Festival has, where I see volunteers stand out and they, they go through the trash almost as an ongoing basis? Yeah, we're going to have a green team and anyone can volunteer. Uh, we need hundreds of volunteers. Uh, but one of the great things we're doing right now, working with the food vendors and the waste management company, is Except for two items that are really meant to be taken home, the rest of the, all the material used in the food uh, aspect of the event will be compostable. So, so everything on site. Your waste station is basically going to be a small container for these two reusable cups if you don't want them, a large composting bin that includes food and all the packaging, and then a very small little container that's for the landfill, mm -hmm. which is predominantly going to be for materials that people bring into the Volvo Ocean Race that can't be recycled. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's the goal, right? You've got to set them. What's the most surprising thing that's ever been retrieved from a cleanup? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were out on, I mean, we were out on Ocean Drive, and we were out there with a group of, of exchange students from China through a school in Boston College like four years ago. And it was July 21st, and we were cleaning around this little crevice by the Newport Golf Club mm -hmm. by Kings Beach. And, you know, the, the, the students all said, this is beautiful. They're like, in China, the ocean's yellow. And two hours later, when they came back, they had a little different understanding of the problem. But when we were out there, we found this yellow and blue bowl it was like the ceramic bowl, and underneath it, it said the word uh, Liza, and it had a date of July 21st, 2009. So we still have that bowl, and we use it as the donation bowl at some of our <laughs> events. But we found a bowl with the same date out on, like, this pristine coastline. Uh, and it was a yellow bowl, and the kids from China said that in China, the ocean's yellow. So it might not be the weirdest, but it's like it brought together so many different dimensions of like the events that we do. Right. So it, it, the bowl means a lot to us. But anything that people use in their day to day lives, we found it out on the shoreline. So you can only use your imagination. I'm not sure what audience is listening, so yeah. I'm not going to go into too much no, detail. <laughs> Have you ever had a young person, to your knowledge, that's participated in any of your events or any of your, or even collecting bacteria, the water samples, um, that has, when I say young, I mean maybe student uh, age, that's changed their direction or refocused their studies or their career based on their experience to the positive? Oh, wow. I, I've met so many students, dozens of students over the years that now have a really strong focus in environmental science and marine affairs. Uh, you but think they had that coming in? I think they had an interest, but then they, I think they saw a focus and they saw the opportunity. Uh, and I've talked to hundreds of students, you know, during outreach events and, and that people are, you know, make some type of pledge of sustainability. But I think one of the most inspiring stories was down at the Traskin, I think it was last summer, 
where they were finding like plastic spoons and little cups. And, you know, the question was, well, what are you going to do to, you know, improve ocean health? And one of the students says, I'm going to make sure to eat my ice cream and ice cream cones instead of getting <laughs> the cup, you know? Well, yeah. But at that age, hey, that means a lot, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I also think a frosty that. freeze coming up here. It's like, yep. let's get back to the cone and skip that foam and skip that spoon. The spoon, yeah. Or bring your own spoon. How about that? Right. <laughs> yeah, but I guess people don't think about it that way. Have you ever had anyone acknowledge at, at a cleanup or an event that they've changed their behavior as a result? Their own personal behavior, not yeah. you know what they intend to do with their lives, but you know maybe it, it, picking up so many certain things on the ground made them suddenly aware and then realize, hey, I do that. Yeah. I don't think it's a switch. I think it's a process. Yeah. I think that you come out to an event and you connect with nature and you develop an awareness and an awareness of the issue, an appreciation of the severity, and then I think it starts to tickle the behavior change. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I look around now, I mean, we used to give out reusable bags to people because no one had them, and now, you know, most people have them. And the same thing goes with the reusable bottles. So I think that you know, indirectly, by the awareness that people have about the global issue of plastic pollution and ocean litter, as well as the hands-on work that thousands of people have done. I, I do think behavior change is happening, mm -hmm. but I think you ask a really good question, and I think anecdotal information is is valid to a point, but quantitative information is really important, yeah. uh, and we hope to uh, assist some graduate students at URI in the coming year that uh, will be doing some research on this topic. We've talked mostly about debris and, and things like that, but the access is a part of your name, yeah. the, the, the third. You've recently taken a, a, a active steps to help keep that access. I'm thinking of one particular fence that migrated, sure. and you, it, you successfully pushed it back. Um, how important is that? Is that up there with the other? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I hope it never happens that we ever have to scale back the organization. Hmm. But if we did, the name of the group would be called Access. Oh. And that would be the only thing that we work on. Because at the end of the day, if you can't get to the water, you can't enjoy it. Right. So uh, when you get to the water's edge, that's when these things like a clean shoreline and healthy water make a difference. Mm. But if you can't get there in the first place, we've got a serious problem. Right. So there's 50 access points on Aquidneck Island. There probably should be 200. Uh, and so we are very interested in protecting, preserving, and expanding public access to the shoreline. Uh, it comes with responsible behavior. I mean, people need to use the shorelines in a responsible way. If I had waterfront property and people were disrespecting my land, I'd probably act the way people would like to, and I'd want to close it off. Uh, you know, but there's huge opportunities. I mean, the west side of Quinnick Island, from, from Cypress Street to Common Fence Point in Portsmouth, mm -hmm. there is there are no official CRMC rights of ways. There's one urban coastal greenway at Pheasant Drive Beach, but besides that, we need to make sure that we get access points all along Burma Road because people have been using that coastline, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, as the Navy has kind of let go of some of the controls. But it, it, it substantiates the reason that people use those coastlines, and we need to make sure people have access there. Uh, you go out on the east side of the island and you try to walk from, try to walk from uh, Pheasant Drive. I mean, from Pebble Beach, you know, at, to uh, Taggart's Ferry. It's, that's impossible to mm -hmm. do. 
Uh, and the U.S., you know, the Rhode Island Constitution says that everyone's got access to the shoreline up to the mean high tide water level. So except cases where you have a, a dock and a seawall, mm-hmm. you should be able to walk at low tide all around Aquidneck Island. So, yeah, protecting public access is the number one priority. Uh, but it gets complicated. Right. You know? Uh, have you found that you've worked complementary with other groups, maybe like Friends of the Waterfront? or Yeah, yeah, down in the Newport Harbor, absolutely. And I think that, you know... That's mainly where they're focusing. Yeah, and I think Friends <clears throat> of the Waterfront has taken a leader, uh, more of a leadership role on some of the active issues down there as far as some the development on Scott's Wharf uh, as well as the Armory. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting topic because we're keenly aware of kind of our broader objectives for our access program, mm-hmm. but we recognize that, you know, it does sometimes mean that we can't get as involved in particular issues, uh, but we, we do monitor all the access points at least once a month, and if there are any issues that we deal with them, we just dealt with the safety issue on the east side of the Goat Island Causeway where the city of Newport addressed the issue. There's an access point on the west side of the Goat Island Causeway that even CRMC doesn't know if it's on the north side or the south side, so we're trying to fix oh, wow. that out. Uh, and also, where the topics start to blur is, you know, you talk about, like, erosion and, like, the effects of stormwater. These things are happening on the shoreline, on these access points. So that's really where you get that intersection of our ocean program and water quality and stormwater runoff. Uh, and there are also common problems of debris at all these access points as well. Right. So all of our programs are really happening. Uh, but, yeah, access access means the most. It's the hardest one to make progress on, mm. and it's perhaps the least sexy of them all right. to market it. I mean, you know, the, the, the straw in the turtle's nose, like, tugs at your heart. Right. Uh, but I think a bunch of us standing behind a fence not being able to paddle out, that has another story as well. Right. <laughs> there is one place, and I'm not exactly sure where it was. I I would have to do a little more research. But there was a dock, and I believe it's somewhere near the Moorings restaurant, maybe a bit south, there was a dock there. And from that dock, John Lennon set sail to Bermuda. And then when he got to Bermuda, he actually stayed for a while. And that was when he decided, it was actually during a storm offshore that he decided to get back into music. Unfortunately, his life was cut short. But in Bermuda, they have a big monument to him for his time there and commitment back to writing music. And I was trying to identify the spot and was hoping that maybe it was on or near city property. Right. And I think I'd, I'd mentioned it to your dad when he was a councilman that it would be cool, even if it doesn't have to be at that right location, that Newport acknowledged that from this location. Yeah. You know, I think it's great. John Lennon set sail. And uh, I, I, I do know the, the skipper who, who took them, and I, I, yeah. I've been in touch with him. Well, you know, we're trying to create a legacy project for the Volvo Ocean Race, so maybe mm. that could be one. You know? Yeah. That's a good idea. Speaking of beetles, if you mm. could choose one beetle to help you with a clean ocean access project, who would you choose? I don't know. That's a tough question. <laughs> you know, Living or deceased? I don't know. You know, you know. Who designed the logo for clean ocean access? Yeah. yeah. So I would have to ask Bert. He'd probably be a better person to pick a beetle. Oh, okay. Uh, Bert Emerson, good friend. Uh, he's a professor at Salve Regina University. Right. Uh, so he, he got involved in the organization. Uh, a good friend, Andrew Going, who surfs and you know, you know, shapes surfboards, is a great person. Uh, he, he was really how I met Bert. And as Bert's just... 
you know, an amazing person. And uh, at some point, he was doing some work with us. He was creating like this GIS map for our water quality stuff. And then he's like, "Yeah, I created a logo." And I was like, "It's great, and we love it." And so we've had it since twenty third, since two thousand and twelve, uh, and it, it really uh, it captures the essence of. The, the work that we do because it's kind of splashed all over the place, but at the core is yes. the clean ocean and access. I noticed in my most recent mail uh, email from Clean Ocean Access, you refer to April as Earth Month, and uh, back in college in Boston, I remember it was Earth Day. Right, right. When did it become Earth Month? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, you know, they real, you know, it's, it should you know, be every day. Every day is Earth Day, right? Right, or something like that. Uh, but what we found from an organization's point of view is we recognize that so many people reach out to us to try to do things in April, and we love it that we've, we've just we, – we try to accommodate all requests that people have, but at mm -hmm. the same time, we try to share our schedule. So, like, sending out 30 ways to celebrate Earth Month is kind of like our nice way of saying this is what we're doing, and we'd love to have you a part of it. Right. But we really can't take on too much more stuff right now. Right. Uh, you know. I say that we've still taken on a little bit more, but yeah, I think everyone's, you know, if, if Earth Month in April is the reason why people decide to become more responsible with their behaviors to improve, you know, the environment and ocean health, hey, make it every day. Absolutely. If you could direct people, one of my two or three listeners, to engage in anything during the month of April, what would you recommend? I would say they should sign the Clean Seas Pledge. I saw that, yes. Yeah, and they should make a, some type of pledge of sustainability both for the 13 days that the Volvo Ocean Race is in town, maybe set a stretch goal like, you know, zero waste for a day. Mm -hmm. Keep track of all your material. Skip the straw. Have a reusable bottle. But then set some, some bigger goals like don't drive your car one day a week for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, think about composting, you know. Uh, You've got to think long-term on these topics. Uh, prevention is the key, and we need to prevent the amount of material waste entering uh, the environment. So I think it would be just to find one or two things that you can really latch on to. Uh, you know, and it's great to use reusable products, but if you only use them 80 or 90% of the time, you need to focus on the other 10 or 20%. Right. And actually change your way so that if you're – are going to the store and you forgot your bag, it's like then you're not shopping. Right. You know? Yeah. It's like if you're thirsty and you don't have a container, use your two hands. Cup the water. You know? <laughs> I mean, I know it yeah. sounds funny, but it's like that's that's behavior change. Right. Uh, and as my mom always tells me, behavior change is somewhere between very difficult and impossible. So I get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, it's a process. It's not a switch. But, uh, yeah, people become creatures of habit. And, absolutely. Yeah. So if people want to get involved with Clean Ocean Access, best thing is just to go to your website? Yeah, I mean, you can go to our website and check it out. We've got a page that's called Get Involved. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also just send us an email at info at cleanoceanaccess.org. Uh, I've always encouraged people to stop by my house and say hi, but now that we have an office, you can come to our office at 23 Johnny Cake Hill in Middletown, Rhode Island. We've got an open-door policy, so anyone's welcome to come in at any time. Uh, we have a multitude of events that are happening left and right. Right. Uh, we've got a great meeting tomorrow night. I, you know, the list goes on and on. Right. Uh, really busy, but thoroughly enjoying it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Absolutely.